0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. As Afghanistan enters a perilous and uncertain future, the United Nations has promised to, quote, stay and deliver. To be sure, the needs are immense. The country's humanitarian emergency is getting more acute by the day. Indeed, on September 1st, the top UN official remaining in Afghanistan warned that food supplies are running low, even as the UN resumes some humanitarian airlifts in parts of the country. Meanwhile, the Security Council's role in managing the political transition in Afghanistan is also unclear. On the one hand, the Council did pass a resolution on Afghanistan. On the other hand, the resolution did little more than call for the Taliban to give Afghans safe passage out of the country. And even so, China and Russia abstained from the resolution. On the line with me to discuss the UN's role in the new Afghanistan is Mark Malik Brown. He is the President of the Open Society Foundations and has had a long career at the United Nations, including as Administrator of the UN Development Program and as Deputy UN Secretary General. We kick off discussing the Security Council's approach to Afghanistan, including some key questions it may face, like whether or not to deploy a peacekeeping mission and how to deal with the fact that many Taliban leaders are under Security Council sanction. We then have a broad conversation about the emerging contours of the UN's role in Afghanistan. This is a great conversation that does a good job of outlining some of the big decisions that the international community and the Taliban will have to make in the coming days and weeks that will shape the UN's role in Afghanistan going forward. And as always, a big thank you to regular listeners of the show. Please send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com with whatever is on your mind. I love hearing from you, and I am very excited for programming in September. We'll have a special week of programming during the UN General Assembly starting September 20th. Stay tuned for that. I'm very excited for our special UNGA coverage. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, now here is my conversation with Mark Malik Brown, President of the Open Society Foundations and former Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations. We are obviously speaking at a very precarious moment in Afghanistan, The Security Council has already adopted one resolution that, among other things, called for the safe passage of Afghans out of Afghanistan. What else would you like to see from the Security Council right now? Leadership, in a word. Uh, I I think the Security Council
1: has to rise above its national interests and really recognize that it has a shared interest in a stable Afghanistan. You know, there will be a lot of differences of those national interests. China may look at it mainly through an economic lens and a security lens as as a neighbor. Russia through a security lens. Uh, The West through more particularly a refugee lens, but also the humiliation of frankly having lost a war in Afghanistan. But, you know, people need to step back and recognize that whether they're looking at it through the lens of human rights economics or security we are all served but more particularly the people of afghanistan are best served by you know a, a security council that comes together to try and secure a afghanistan which as i say is stable and inclusive in its model of government and you know if you, if you are China or Russia and you may not have the same sensitivity towards the human rights agenda that Western members of the council have, you nevertheless can see that Afghanistan needs a government that its people have granted a license to operate to. Uh, if it is a sort of Taliban military occupation, uh, there is going to be continued instability. If, on the other hand, there is a process of reconciliation which uh, leads to the Taliban, A, including other elements in its government and uh, B, uh, moderating its behavior around issues like human rights and makes it sort of more open to a sort of more open economic model. If all of those things happen, that's going to be an Afghanistan which is going to be much more politically durable and much less troubled to its neighbors. So I think, you know, the Security Council needs to start from that point of philosophical convergence around what it wants for the country. Then it moves quickly, for, should move quickly from that to a number of decisions. You know, a strengthened mandate for UNAMA around political reconciliation, a Around a human rights monitoring role, around humanitarian assistance, with now half the country needing uh, humanitarian support of some kind, uh, and around ensuring continued rights of would be refugees to leave in an orderly way uh, without sort of restriction or risk of incarceration. And, you know. That Again, there's a deal at the heart of this, that the Taliban needs that humanitarian assistance, it needs that economic support, it needs that international recognition. So there, there is, again, a basis for the Council to secure... Uh, you know, not just agree on a mandate, but secure Taliban acquiescence and agreement to that mandate if we see a more imaginative, more proactive, uh, more statesmanlike like um, Security Council than we've seen to date?
0: Well, you know, we are facing this coming deadline regarding the mandate renewal for UNEMA, which I think comes up just in a couple of weeks from when we're speaking now. So there is uh, almost a sense of urgency to really think hard about what a future mandate for the UN assistance mission in Afghanistan will look like going forward. Uh, that's right. And there's a fundamental tension at the moment
1: between a UN, which is uh, at the sort of secretariat management level, engaged in exactly the same kind of duty of care extraction operations that organizations like my own OSF are engaged in, where it's very hard to to pivot and say, actually, not just how do we get our people out and to safety, but how do we ready ourselves for an expanded mission, particularly when our own leadership is out of the country, our national staff being told to shelter or stay in the compounds uh, where, where they are based. You know, so somehow there's got to be that very bold and again difficult to do uh, leap of perspective from protection and withdrawal to renewed engagement behind a new mandate. And obviously, to have any chance of pulling that off, it needs the acquiescence or concurrence agreement of the Taliban that UN. Uh, the UN flag un personnel will be completely respected and not at risk but and and you know I suspect it may need a bigger security component i I don't think there's a there's the appetite for a peacekeeping mission and I'm not sure there are the conditions for a peacekeeping mission but it'll be a kind of if you like better protected mission than before wow. I suspect in this context but you know so so kind of getting that pivot, from the Secretary General downwards to uh, a renewed ambition for a bigger role in the country is going to be key. But you know, it's also going to be the Security Council really coming in behind it, with key countries like China and Russia uh, really playing an active role. Because you know, we've got to recognise that you know the, the the hand on this, the baton, if you like, has passed from the U.S. and the U.K. and France primarily to China and Russia. They are the leading P5 members now on the future of Afghanistan.
0: I'm glad you brought up the idea of a UN peacekeeping mission, you know, I've seen some discussion of this among academic circles and in advocacy circles, trying to raise the idea that a UN peacekeeping mission in some form deployed to Afghanistan might be a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, Do you see any wisdom or utility in that?
1: Well, I think, you know, if you look at peacekeeping as really a concept which works because after all UN peacekeepers are very lightly armed compared to uh say the uh US and NATO forces which which have just pulled out of the country you know peacekeeping only works when it has the consent of the different parties so that it's not an active enforcer of the peace in a situation where it is being repeatedly challenged so you know the only model for peacekeeping is if the Taliban and you know other armed groups in the country, accept that they want the thin blue dividing line, keep them apart or or to monitor uh, their engagement in a way that is reporting on conflict and quickly bringing a diplomatic mediation uh, presence to bear to to, to resolve that conflict. So it would need not just agreement in the council, uh, which I think would be hard to get because there aren't that many troop contributing countries who, having seen the extraordinary evacuation exercise we've just been through would, you know, with ease commit their soldiers. It would also need, you know, a peace to keep. It would need a reconciliation process which would produce a peace plan that then need peacekeepers to, to monitor and implement and for all sides to be party to that agreement. So, you know, I don't see it in the immediate future but potentially down the road, one might anticipate it. If it's
0: accompanied by some larger peace process. Exactly. Preceded by that
1: peace process, Mm -hmm. because it come in to implement some peace agreement rather than, you know, be the tool for securing the, the different sides to come to the table. I mean, you know, Afghanistan has just escaped what many Afghans, certainly those in the Taliban, chose to see as an occupation. Uh, And, you know, any UN blue flag operation that comes in on the back of that has to have a completely different purpose and be framed in a completely different way uh, and one which the people of Afghanistan welcome and support. Because without that, you know, it's going to be, you know, on its back foot from day one, it's going to end up like peacekeeping in the Congo or other places Mm -hmm. where, you know, An initially uh, peace monitoring role uh, quickly degenerates into a peace enforcement role for which the the UN forces are not equipped already. So you've got to kind of, you know, really get that solid peace agreement, get that ground firm if there would be any prospect of, 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 of a peacekeeping force coming in. And as I say, it would be a peace monitoring force, not an enforcement force.
0: So, any Security Council engagement with the Taliban at some point, I would think, has to wrestle with the fact that many Taliban leaders are under Security Council sanction. Uh, what should the Security Council do about that? It seems like almost we're in this unprecedented situation where the UN is going to have to work closely with this emerging government, and so will the international community. Frankly, if they want to deliver humanitarian assistance and 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 other aid on behalf or for the Afghan people, but many of the leaders of this government are under Security Council sanction. Uh, what should be done about that?
1: Well, you know, as an old
0: UN person,
1: one. Con- well, that's why I asked you. Uh, revel in the irony, <laughs> because you know, here for years, and it's taliban is only one example. There are other examples in the Middle East and other places where, you know, the requirements of humanitarian and human rights work requires that you are talking, and mediation work requires that you're talking to all sides in the conflict, and you know, increasingly in the war on terror years. Uh, uh, 2001, we've, we've, you know, had this perverse situation where uh, the US particularly, as in an extra sovereign way, but then increasingly in many cases supported by the uh, Security Council, you know, tried to ban contacts with certain groups. And, You know, then suddenly, when something like this happens, finding it to its relief that the UN did have some informal contacts with the Taliban and was working with them at the local level, you know. But the perversities are huge. I mean, I sit on the board of an NGO which was in terrible trouble because its local staff had been talking to local Taliban leaders. One day, that's you know described as 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 a you know, breaking the law um, or the Security Council resolutions, the next day it's viewed as, you know, diplomatic perspicacity of a <laughs> kind because... Yeah. Got a network of contacts. And you know, I would hope the Security Council might at some point find the time to reflect on this and recognize that the neutrality of the UN and purposes such as humanitarian assistance or mediation, you know, require it to be able to talk to all sides, and that we went down a very bad. Sort of turn in the road when that universality uh, got challenged by starting to prescribe who in different conflict zones UN officers could or couldn't talk to. Mm.
0: And it seems like the next layer on that question is whether or not, uh, in some formal way, the Taliban should be recognized as you know the government, the legitimate representatives of Afghanistan, you know, at the UN and in other multilateral forum.
1: Well, you know, at, at the moment, in a sense, until the, Af- the Taliban come up with a government, you know, it, it, the, the situation remains in drift, and you know, the famous committee credentials committee can 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 sort of wait for that moment, um, you know, a, and it's still got Myanmar in front of it. I think in terms, <laughs> of, you know, which, which delegation yeah. from, from, from Myanmar, and I, I, I think. You know, we may see something similar here, but I think, you know, there is this outstanding need to get people, continued refugee flows out of the countries, people who've worked with the US and other uh, countries that have been, you know, operating there. There is the responsibility of getting humanitarian assistance in. And, And these things, I think, together make it unlikely that we're going to see probably A credentials or recognition fight at the UN. I think it'll be quite a lot of time, quite a while before a number of bilateral relations get fully restored. But, you know, in the meantime, the need for a sort of multilateral entry point through the UN is going to be very key for the US or the UK or others. So, you know, I I, I expect they will push the UN into the breach on this to, you know, have sufficiently strong relations with a Taliban-led government uh, that, it, it, you know, that can be the appropriate diplomatic contacts to allow humanitarian flows and access, et cetera.
0: We are also speaking ahead of what will be a re-released humanitarian appeal for Afghanistan. You know, the situation's already dire. It is presumed to get much worse in the coming weeks and, and months ahead. Um, I guess one of the key questions is like the mechanics of 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 conducting aid operations in Afghanistan right now um, on on a couple levels. One, you know, I've been speaking with some local Afghan NGO leaders who are out of the country hoping to get back. But one of the key hinges for them is whether or not they as women or their female staff will actually be able to to work and will be able to do their humanitarian and development work going forward it seems like a lot hinges on whether or not the taliban decide to allow women to work both on like a moral level but also just on a practical level of getting un local staff and and local ngos you know back on the ground delivering aid i think it's really important let
1: me just make one point relating Security Council and UNAMA on this. I think one possible direction this goes is that the Security Council has already indicated it's probably not going. It's going to just roll over the UNAMA mission and come back the mandate and come back to it in greater detail uh, later in the year when the situation is clearer. And that is because I think that is the case at the moment in in, uh, Afghanistan that the UNAMA mission is more unpopular than the humanitarian agencies. And, you know, I think one direction this could go is that the political UNAMA Security Council bit stalls because the statesmanship I called for at the beginning of this conversation just isn't there and the Security Council chases its tail on all of this. I think The humanitarian agencies, WFP, UNICEF, UNHCR, uh, the Red Cross, ICRC, etc., you know, may find that they have much greater access precisely because they're out of that kind of political frame and have, you know negotiate agreements around access and distribution, which the Taliban, with half a country uh, needing food aid and, you know, with huge spikes of of need amongst young children and other vulnerable groups, you know, will, will, will negotiate locally. And this reminds me of my Early operations in the UN as a UNHCR field worker, where you actually never anticipated getting a Security Council cover for your operation. You went in under international humanitarian law and the moral duty to save lives. And I think, you know, if the Security Council stalls, I think we'll see the humanitarian part of the UN kind of move on its own, on 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 on, um, and you know, use humanitarian law rather than the security Council, as cover uh, for what it's doing. But then we come to this critical issue of role of women, where, you know, certainly, as you move from humanitarian to the human rights piece, you are moving into an ever more heavily women led group, you know, organizations like mine had a very, uh, OSF, very large group of Women, the head of our office was a woman. She has just been off on maternity leave for the last few weeks. Her uh, temporary replacement was a woman. Uh, And, you know, throughout the time we've been in Afghanistan since 2002, some of our most significant leaders have been Afghan women. And, you know, we've invested a huge amount in Afghan women uh, organizations in the human rights and women's rights field, etc. And so, you know, that whole infrastructure, human infrastructure is jeopardized if the Taliban crack down on women holding these kinds of of jobs outside the home. Uh, And, you know, there seems to be some suggestion that they may be allowed to do the more menial jobs, but not the more senior jobs. Well, again, for organisations like ours, that's not going to work because, you know, women have been really the backbone uh, of of our leadership um, for for much of the period. Uh, And so that is going to be very challenging but the wider point of how the Taliban deals with human rights more generally is equally going to be challenging because you know it did a good public relations piece on coming into Kabul and promised moderation in its treatment of people respect to women journalists respect to the rest but you know then we have and I'm sure you like me have seen grim footage of you know the execution of uh uh, sort of government supporting uh, people in Kandahar, mm-hmm. of you know the example of the Tolo woman uh, newscaster who interviewed a Taliban leader on air, and then has to herself days later fly into exile in Qatar because. Mm-hmm she realizes she's not safe. So until we see a much better resolution of what the Taliban say they want to do and what they are actually doing, until, you know, uh, we talk about... walking the talk. Well, they've got to walk the talk. I mean, until they manage to align their behaviours around behind what they claim are their behaviours, I think we're going to be in tremendous difficulty. But, you know, again, all the more reason for a strong UN presence, if possible, Mm -hmm. is, you know, they are going to be the people, it is going to be our UN colleagues from the human rights side particularly, who are going to be absolutely indispensable in monitoring what's really going on because the NGOs are not going to have that international diplomatic protection you know i know they're all brave putting a brave face on it and saying they hope they can resume their operations but i suspect it'll be only some of them and in quite limited ways and therefore we're all going to depend on un human rights reporting to know what's really going on in the country
0: Well, I mean, the dynamic you describe suggests at least to a degree that the international community does have some leverage over the Taliban in terms of, um, you know, the Taliban's dependence on international aid, their desire to be recognized internationally. And, you know, there has to be some way they could use that leverage to secure like basic human rights. Look,
1: I mean, there there is tremendous, you know, residual humanitarian and development leverage from the fact that the world bank and imf both suspended uh disbursements to the country as as much the rest of the sort of multilateral development bank ifi system uh you know at the moment the only flows coming in are are basically humanitarian and you've got to remember that you know after Afghanistan is one of the most aid-dependent countries in the world. I think that was part of the problem, for you 75% plus of its budget, you know, it was met by, by aid flows from multilateral and bilateral institutions. And, you know, if, if that's frozen, uh, you know, the country will be not necessarily on its knees, but thrown back to a subsistence economy level. And, you know, with a huge cost to Taliban authority in the country, but also remember a huge cost to the well-being of those who've stayed and therefore, you know, an incitement, if ever there was one, to increase migration and refugee exodus. So, you know, it's not a a pain-free option for the West. Uh, It would have huge human consequences and huge impact in terms of Uh, refugee flows so you know there is something to trade off there the west does need to continue assistance to keep the country stable and to keep you know contain refugee flows um, to those just those who are most politically vulnerable and at risk Um, and at the same time the Taliban has massive need for this humanitarian and economic assistance and you know I don't think I I don't think there's any Taliban who would need to be disillusioned about this, but Mm. Russian economic assistance is not going to make up for the loss of U.S. assistance. Chinese assistance will in part, and in terms of longer term infrastructure investment, as it sort of hooks Afghanistan into its sort of belt and road network, You know, as a link between Pakistan and Iran, and between China and the wider West, uh, geographic West, uh, Iran onwards. you know, I, I think China will be an absolute sort of pillar economic partner around future long-term economic strategy, but it's not going to step in with flows that are going to make up for the loss of the Western flows short term. So, you know, there, there, there is a lot of leverage. Um, but again, you know, it, it's both sides have to play, get, play ball on this. You know, the West has to be willing to... Uh, confer some recognition on the government. It's got to be willing to let these large flows uh, go in, and the Taliban has to accept that it's going to have to moderate its behavior and sharply improve its human rights performance. It's going to have to allow UN access and you know proper access to its humanitarian distribution uh, networks as well as to the human rights uh, monitoring role and. You know that that's going to be quite tough for both sides, and you know I think uh, you know whether it's Martin Griffiths as the head of OCHA or his boss Antonio Guterres as Secretary General, you know they, like the Security Council, are going to have to rise to the occasion and show real leadership and vision uh, yeah. to get out of this kind of inevitable and very understandable rut of thinking we've got to get out you know the un's going to have to get back in on a bigger scale than before and that's you know a a, a leadership and psychological challenge for everybody on the un side
0: Uh, well mark malik brown thank you so much for your time this was very helpful All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mark Malik Brown for taking time to speaking with me and sharing his thoughts about the UN's role in Afghanistan going forward. And one quick favor. If you are someone who listens to this show twice a week, every week, or at least once a week, every week, on some regular basis, let's say, please do leave a review wherever you listen to it, especially on Apple Podcasts. It's helpful. It helps spread the word about the podcast to other people who might be so interested in this kind of show. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.